On this, the 50th episode, believe it or not, of the Physio Foundation's podcast, I'm going to have a conversation with Associate Professor Christian Osadnik from Monash University Physiotherapy, and we're going to be talking about the various ways that you can get involved in research yourself as a clinician, as well as the pathways when you're studying in university and when you continue on as a clinician out of university that you can take to get into research. And we're going to talk about the research-specific knowledge and skills that should form the foundation of your clinical practice. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So my guest this week is Associate Professor Christian Osadnik from Monash University Physiotherapy. I work closely with uh, Christian in physio education at Monash Uni in first year of the Bachelor of Physiotherapy course. Um, Christian's the Director of Research for our department for Monash Uni Physio and for the School of Primary and Allied Healthcare, uh, where our department is located. Christian's research focuses on helping people with chronic lung diseases, such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and asthma, and he'll tell us all about that. He has a number of clinical appointments and memberships that will probably come up in the conversation, but he's uh, quite uh, an extensive uh, engagement across academia and in industry. So um, he's a good one to talk about that pathway as well of what you can do in your career, as well as the content of what he, what he knows and what he does. Christian's also the founding director of Respiratory PT Lab, which we can talk about, which is a multidisciplinary laboratory that supports early, clear, uh, early career clinician researchers who want to conduct clinically relevant research. And he's many other things he does. He's a busy man. So I'm delighted that he's made the time to come on and chat to us on the podcast today. So Christian Osadnik, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thank you very much, Luke. And can I say, I didn't realize, but congratulations on Physio Foundations being episode 50. That's very impressive. It's gone really well. And you know, thank you to all the listeners who are out there. A lot of DMs and messages that come in and you know, people are finding the content helpful. So on that, if as a listener, if you if you find a specific episode really helpful to you and you want to hear more of it, just let me know. Don't stay quiet. Mm-hmm. So how are you, Christian? I'm very well, thank you. And it's nice to be able to talk about a topic like this because I I don't feel that I'm that far removed from when I was a clinician. I'm not an active clinician um, by virtue of my appointment at Monash University, but um, it's certainly a topic that I struggled with when I was in my early years and something that I found difficult to navigate and to find people to give advice in this space. So it's, it's nice to um, have something dedicated to talking about this. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be good to hear from you. And you've got a lot of, um, well, you've got a, a lot of experience, but um, you're going to have a lot of advice for people who are on that early part of their pathway. Um, they've got big ideas and big picture um, plans of what they want to do in their career, but it's not necessarily cemented in place yet. But before we get into that, can you tell us a bit more about you, your background and interests? Why are we talking to you today? Happily. Um, So I've been a physio, I graduated um, in 2002, and I've had a mixture of different, I guess, employment opportunities. So I started, I I came through my studies and I always, um, going into my studies, thought I would end up in a sporting area, um, playing soccer, enjoying that, thinking that was where I was going to go. And actually, it was by the time I got to second or third year as studies where I realised I was already changing that. And by the time I got to the end of my course, I knew that respiratory medicine was my particular area that I enjoyed. Um, 
And I think that probably came back from having some familiarity of, um, for example, growing up with asthma, that I had some interest already in wanting to know more about what could a physio do in that space. And I then sort of sought work primarily in the public health hospital sector. And I think that for me, I found that a really good grounding to get more broad knowledge on the various streams within physio um, and a real eye-opener of um, just how much physio practice has an important role in public health and our hospital settings. And that's something I probably didn't appreciate as a lot of people wouldn't in their early years. Um, and I then, I got to a point where I then got a more senior sort of role as a, um, a grade two um, with a cardiorespiratory appointment. And I had to decide what was next because I was there for, you know, maybe four years in that role. And I then looked into the what might my next job look like, what roles are out there. And um, I'll be honest that I had a few questions and a few uncertainties about what to do. And one of them was I had the sort of itch to scratch about what would physio look like overseas. And so I, for example, did an 18-month, um, I wouldn't call it a gap year, that's probably not the right term, but uh, um, a trip abroad um, after I got married and then we moved over to the UK and I then worked for a year as a senior in Scotland in a big public hospital there in the NHS. Um, and that was really cool as a different scene, something quite different, except it was very much in my mind a case of is the grass greener on the other side and is Australian physio very different and are the health systems very different? And maybe that was going to be an eye opener to then come back home and realize that I could maybe do something different and the experience was fantastic however it came to the led me to the conclusion that I felt what we were doing in Australia was quite you know high quality world leading type quality of physio and it wasn't a case that I felt that overseas there was more on offer than what I could have achieved here so I was actually it sort of cemented my confidence that I did want to stay and work and I was in the right area in Australia. And it depends, of um, course, what area of physio you're talking well, exactly about and right. where you're working. But your experience there was, okay, I'm looking for greener pastures and oh, the grass tastes a bit different. It's not necessarily greener. And I, I thought it might be I thought it might be quite different and I realised actually, no, it's quite similar and our standard of practice was very high and I felt that I, for example, went into a role as a more senior role than what I maybe assumed I should have had and I realized actually I was probably underselling myself that our standard, even if you might be in a grade one job or a grade two job, it is probably equivalent to a slightly more senior job elsewhere. And that our, you know, the rigor of how we're taught and the quality of our practice, I felt was quite good. And that's not in any way saying that there's any difference globally in the standards of physio, but that I was confident, therefore, that my I wasn't missing out on something here. I didn't feel like we you know, weren't quite um, having a full scope of what we could do in terms of opportunity to work in the cardiorespiratory space. So, mm. um, it, it, but the, the other problem it caused for me was then what to do next because I wanted a new challenge. <laughs> one of one of my, I've realised, traits that I've learned about myself is I don't like to stay in one role for a very long time doing the same thing over and over. I like to have challenges or something new and a new project to address. Um, so I very much had the plans, which a lot of people might have, which was 
I like the idea of research as a potential way to get some new traction in the cardiorespiratory space because I didn't want to be a manager and I didn't want to go down that path of going from clinician to management. To me, that was not very appealing. Tell the students and the new grads about those possible choices. So as you're when, when you're focusing on your studies at your university, you're probably thinking mainly about being a clinician and mm. su- even surviving is the wrong word, but, that, but those intense first couple of years when you're on that learning curve clinically. But then the pathway, as you mentioned, could be managerial. It can involve mm. research. It can obviously involve academia, other industries, Absolutely. lots of different. So to give people an idea about where you could go four yeah. or five years out. So, and I think that, for example, I was in that same boat of enthusiastically, my priority of studying was to get out there and be a clinician. And you just, then when you're a clinician, you want to maximize your learning. You're like a sponge and you're going to PD courses and you're really soaking in a lot of knowledge and maybe working out what path you want to be on in terms of your direction. And I, I actually applied and I sought some more senior roles in the cardiorespiratory clinician space, but I actually felt that for me, having a constant caseload in a public health system, I didn't want to be outside the public health hospital system because that to me was where I felt really valued as contributing to patients who were really unwell and needed help. Um, but I didn't want to just do that. And so I, I actually had some, I sort of looked for some good career advice. And so I was aware at the time that opportunities to get a different role in my environment constituted of clinical roles or management. They were the only two options I saw at the time. And I was less aware of maybe how many other side avenues I might be able to go down as a clinician or as a physio um, in Australia. And I actually sought out some mentorship and spoke to someone who was one of my former lecturers um, that I got on with quite well um, at university and whom I'd had touch with. And so I arranged a meeting to just discuss career. And that's actually where I got a bit more context um, and I had a lot more options more clearly explained. And I was curious about high degree research and I just needed to know more about it because I didn't, I couldn't read websites and understand what courses might be appropriate or what might be good. I needed someone to actually give that guidance. And oh, yeah, yeah. once I then sort of had options on the table, I was then able to a bit more make this decision around, okay, I think I'm more suited to this. And the big decision-making was then, am I going to go for it? And I sort of just had to put myself in that category of, if you don't try, you'll never know. So just go for it. <laughs> and mm. that sort of, that set me down the academic path. Yeah, I mean, there's, that, that's a really nice summary. It really links into a couple of previous episodes. We've talked to students who are planning the overseas, working in the UK thing. Um, Oliver, who talked to me last week, had a very similar story. We had a sports focus in his first year, and then he's, he's a couple of years out, and um, discovered um, public health and discovered what happens in hospitals. And mm. and he, he had some interesting comments and reflections on that. He thought, well, the... The, the, the extent to which I can help people is is huge here. I've got people I could stop someone from falling. Mm, they exactly. stay in their home for ten years longer than they will. <laughs> there's there's so many um, so much quality of life that you can change in that role as well. When you contrast that to what he might have done in elite sports, and and look, one thing that I'd probably do have to um, uh, admit when I had this um, 
plan to change the scenario. I actually, my first move from a clinician's job was upon coming back from overseas. I looked at the job market that was out there. I looked at jobs and I basically saw the clinician jobs that were the ones I was aware of as a the kinds of roles that I knew existed. And that was actually when I approached Monash University. Now, things are quite different now in terms of how opportunities might come about, but I sought to get some casual sort of um, work as a bit of a taste tester and see if I liked working in the university system. And it was helping with marking initially. It was yeah. nothing that may seem overly exciting. Then it was helping out with a bit of a shoot or developing some resources. It was very sort of basic, small scales, but that was a foot in the door. And then from that, there was a need for a bit more time. And then that bit more time turned into a casual contract moving into a part-time sessional contract and then sort of building from there. And of course, once the foot was in the door, I realized that, you know, it's quite, I think I was quite surprised by the contrast of the atmosphere where as a clinician you work set rigid hours you have to be there with a caseload for certain times of the day um, there was very minimal flexibility is what I found in the sort of healthcare system mm. and it was quite a contrast to in the academic system where it was much more flexibility um, I then had family we started having kids when I was then young in that phase and the ability to juggle priorities it was far more appealing and more, um, I could manage it much easier. And I basically didn't look back after that, except the the challenge was working in academia is I don't feel like I've removed myself from being a clinician or clinically oriented um, physio. And I don't want to be removed from that. So I still maintain, and I've gone to a lot of lengths to maintain links to um, the hospital sector because I feel like to be even a researcher or an educator, you can't lose track of actually what current clinical practice looks like. Otherwise, yeah. you I feel like you risk going out of touch. Yeah. There's a lot in that. I mean, if you think back to the pathways that you've mentioned, so you initially you start off with soccer for you and then yeah. you're thinking, okay, sports physio, and then you <laughs> oh. think, okay, and then you're thinking respiratory and clinical and then you're thinking management versus research in public health. and But then there's academic with teaching and then, throw travel in there as well. And then we've only scratched the surface of the various pathways mm. people can take. And it was it was interesting that you talked about mentorship because that's been a focus of a number of previous episodes as well. And yeah, and I think getting also your, getting mm. the right advice or finding the right people and someone yeah. who you trust because I realised there were, there were some people I knew of that I could have approached, but I didn't really, um, I didn't want to speak to them because I suspected I would have, been put down a certain path and right. um, I just wanted neutral information. So it was a case of finding the right person, which thankfully I did get some good advice. Hmm. There's a good tips there on approaching workplaces and offering your, your time for sessional work. For example, if you want to, if you're thinking you're, you're a clinician, you're thinking, how do I get, get into work in the university and add some of that flexible work into mm. your demanding clinical role? And that's that's a way to do it. There's always academics looking for help with marking and, and that can sometimes lead to tutoring. So we're talking about education here. How do you, how, what, what mentoring advice do you give your clinicians, perhaps those that you work with, with respiratory PT lab or in the yeah. clinic or anywhere you meet clinicians who say, yeah, I don't want to do a PhD, but yeah. I do want to get more active in research. Yeah, that, that's a really um, 
it's an important area that I struggled to find good advice in that frame of mind when I was at that point. And I, I, for example, even coming into doing, being an educator at the university, it's very much like not altruistic, but it was, I know that I struggled as a young grad to get that information conveyed clearly to me. I know that there were as a student on placement, I sometimes had supervisors where I felt I didn't rate them as a particularly effective supervisor as an educator to me when I really wanted and needed some good advice. And I then felt I I had a personal interest in doing that. So whilst I never came out of university wanting to be an, an educator, I also knew that there were things that I felt I could do a good job at communicating to other people and other students. And so Right. I was almost motivated personally by not not like an I feel I can do it better than I had taught. That's not that wasn't quite the accurate scenario, but I felt like I could give it a go. And some people have that bug where they know, yes, I feel like I could do that well. But for mm. people who don't have that and they don't want to, I wouldn't be encouraging and pushing them that you should be doing teaching, for example. So I think that it's a very much it has to be the right fit to the situation and the personality. Yeah. Um but finding then that bit more out about research, like I, this sounds bad, I didn't want to do a PhD, but I, in finding out information about how to do research, I looked at the options that were out there and I got some good advice around I could just do a bit of research, I could do a master's, I could do a PhD, I could just become a clinician that does some research on the side. And I personally have a very similar approach that when people come to me and ask questions about that, I don't feel like it's our role to tell people you should do this, you should do that, but to know what information is out there and what the options are. Yeah. I chose a PhD, which was really hard financially. That I must admit that was the biggest <laughs> challenge yeah. was going from a full-time clinician to a full-time student. Um, so that was not to be underestimated as a barrier. And I, hence I'm very aware that it's it's not suitable for everyone to be able to do it, certainly full-time. Maybe it's better for some people looking at things part-time. Mm. Um, but the jump I made into doing it and deciding that I was going to do it was I had the flexibility of my university appointment to give me that little bit of casual or ongoing work on the side. So I knew that that had a degree of flexibility with it. And I figured that if I was going to invest time in a degree, the PhD was probably giving the maximum amount of reward that could be got from any of them, even though it would took longer, that it would be then setting me up for a lot more of the foundations to come. Whereas there's still, unfortunately, sometimes a bit of a perception that if you've done only a master's, which is not only a master's, but the doors don't open as much and maybe you're maybe not going to have as good potential to maybe get a job as a competitive applicant for an academic job down the track because a lot of universities now, a PhD can be a minimum requirement. So um, I've sort of felt like that was enough of a reason to say, well, if I'm going to do two years or three years or four years to at least tick that box to know that I've got that security blanket down the track, then that was uh, very much a reason to do the PhD option for me. Whereas if you're certain that that's not going to be an option, so an academic career is not in your Correct. future, and if that's then not a master's the by research Absolutely. or an MPhil, if it's called that elsewhere, yeah. is 
potentially a place where you can learn a lot of research skills that you totally. can then apply in your clinic, be a clinical leader in the public health system exactly or right. in the private system. And they're things that aren't written on websites, like you mentioned no. earlier. That, that, that explanation of what those degrees mean isn't written anywhere. And so we're, we're here inviting people to have these conversations with us and with others and yeah. seek that mentorship you talked about. Otherwise, you, if you're someone who's you know, a clinician, you think I'd like to know like Brian Kim, who's been on the podcast two or three times. He, I was his mentor for those conversations mm -hmm. amongst other people. I said, please ask others as well. Don't just ask me. And look, and I, I should did. also mm. add that that's, that was really also partly my motivation for setting up our respiratory physio lab, which was really mm. me working, still maintaining a link to a clinical setting in a hospital setting and knowing that I struggled as a clinician to get some good advice or some guidance. And so I very much set my lab up so that clinicians may only want to dip their toe in the water and tackle a project and learn a little bit. And that's okay. Like there's no mm. no preconceptions that for some people that is absolutely the first step. And if you're a grade one or grade two, it may be that you're involved in a quality improvement activity, but you're not actually sure that that's the topic you want to spend three years researching, but you're happy to just give it a go. And to me, that's what really the heart of our um, projects are about is that getting someone to give some advice and guidance on things, being able to maybe control a series of projects so that they're all kind of related so that people then can help learn off each other and there's a bit of a supportive community. Um, that, that's very much, I guess, the motivation for having set that up is that I want to have that as a continuing focus so that people know that there are options out there to get some sort of good support, even if you're not going to go down an absolute path of a full research program. Yeah, that's great. And then to, to generalise that further, if you're in another country or you're outside of the cardiorespiratory field and you're thinking, well, I'm a clinician, I think I might, I do want to dip my toe in the water, as the saying goes, I'd like to continue a similar clinical load, but be involved somehow in research. We're always, so academics, but I say we um, are often supervising not just PhD students, but undergraduate and doctor of physio students, and they're running research projects they have to they often have to do a research project as a part of their degree and they might publish that. So quite often you can, if you're interested and you set up an appointment or send an email to someone who works in the university in a role that you're interested in working in, what opportunities are there, big and small? Quite often yeah. there's little projects you can be involved it's, in as the, even just the on-site supervisor and have absolutely. a student that comes in and collects some data or you could be involved with the write-up of that paper. And I think that there's there's a lot of merit in even with a project, there are many ways to skin a cat, as the saying, or many ways to even get involved in a project because it's not that you have to be coming in with an idea and leading and doing some big trial. And, for example, when I was trying to start my PhD, I didn't know whether I had officially – I had honours equivalents, um, which is one of the sort of mandatory criteria, but – I didn't have maybe publications to try and compete for a scholarship. And so I actually spent, you know, the best part of six months working one day a week or a few hours a week sort of voluntarily, so to speak, but within my role at the uni. And I worked as a research assistant to just analyse some data for my proposed supervisor who'd already pr pr proposed my research. But I said, well, is there something I could do that just gets me an abstract for a conference? And then that counts as a little publication. And it was not difficult. Like, the, you know, the work sometimes as a research assistant can be really 
basic data entering and doing some repetitive tasks. But that was enough to just give me a first taste of what it was like. And I quite enjoyed doing, you know, it may not have been the most exciting data entry, but the process and going through it, um, I knew from doing my honours as an undergrad student that I enjoyed the process of the challenge of learning, doing different um, research principles, different stats, things like that. And even though I didn't understand them fully, that part of a proper program of research like an MPhil or a a PhD is very much, in my opinion, an apprenticeship that is guiding you with your learning. It's not about changing the world with your PhD. You're only tackling this tiny little slither in the end, but um, the learning that you get along the way was setting you up for what you're going to do down the track. Mm. You're a bit of a mirror to my experience. We've had very, (laughs) I think we graduated in the same year, 2002. Um, We've done Oh, what year did you work in Scotland again? Because I did the same thing. Six to seven. That, that's right. Yeah. Susanna and I were there in 2007 in hospitals. It's, it's so funny. <laughs> Almost funny. overlaps and this, it's a very similar journey into a PhD and into academia and maintaining links to clinical practice. So when you, a lot of this we've talked about already many times on the, the podcast, it's good to hear someone at your level mm. talking about what could be quite possibly some really relatable things for people who are, in the new graduate or student years, you're thinking about, oh, you said I didn't want to do a PhD. How many times yeah. have I heard that? Yeah, it's not necessarily absolutely. something you want to do, um, but then it, you know, you've really nicely explained how that could be a part of your pathway. And likewise, if you're never going to do a PhD, but you are interested in being a research literate, research active um, mm. clinician, there's so many ways you can do that. So how do our so we can only really talk about our experience at Monash Physio, but we can talk a bit more broadly about the principles. What are the most important research knowledge and skills that you you can learn yeah, as a look, current undergrad or, or doctor of physio student that you and I would have just never known anything about 20 years ago? This is, this is one of the real challenges that I came through my undergrad studies and I knew about research we did subjects um in research i remember quite clearly there were you know subjects where we learned a lot about you know those psychological examples of experiments and research principles that i could pass the subjects at the time i didn't really get its application to physio i must admit at the time as a student um coming out as a clinician in the early years i would read papers with interest and I would really try hard to try and understand and translate it. So I guess I was more of a research user or a research consumer. Yeah. Um, I certainly wasn't literate enough to fully understand the limitations and the challenges of the research. But I think through the through my PhD process, that very much dialed me in, you know, crank up the notch in terms of my learning to then realise that there was a lot more to understanding and appraising literature and applying it than what I appreciated um, at the time. And and actually, fortunately, then when I was in my role at Monash University and whilst my background's in cardiorespiratory physio, my teaching was a lot heavily based in cardiorespiratory physio um, content that we also had our research stream at the university and I actually just enjoyed looking up material and sort of looking at content we had at the time when I was there we had Jenny Keating who was just you know a really inspiring passionate 
uh, physio leader of our department and um, it's very easy to get drawn into her stories, her examples, her passion for research. Um, and I very much got sort of um, linked into that stream through her leadership in that space as well. And I helped doing marking with her initially. That was actually my probably my very first role that I had at the university was marking with her. Um, and I think that through that time then onwards, I've often looked back and I've gone, gee, I never quite had the scenario of then applying my PhD as a clinician and working in the space and actually treating people with a new mindset that was informed from my PhD research in COPD and airway clearance techniques. But I've tried, therefore, with our training of our students and speaking to clinicians about some of these key areas, like where are the priority topics or the priority areas that we really want to concentrate on. And so some of those areas I think that are really important as students and as people in the early years is probably appreciating what is evidence, what is good evidence versus what is not so good evidence. Mm, it's a big one. And where does evidence have limitations? Because I think that if we're talking about being evidence-based practitioners, we draw upon the best available evidence that we have there. But of course, the best available evidence doesn't mean it is the highest quality of evidence. And the way it's applied in a study is sometimes so different to the reality of a patient in front of us that even if you read the paper, critiqued it, even if you determined that it was a good quality publication, if it doesn't apply to that patient, you can't defend your decision that I'm going to do that treatment because that paper said it. And so realizing what is out there you can't just translate it without going through a process of evaluating it and um i feel like that's something we do quite well in our training students may also find it difficult because i think even if i was a student now even though we teach it throughout our four years of our undergrad program it's in every unit of every course that we have at monash that it's still hard until you're out there and have experience and have questions that you then sometimes need that context to actually really appreciate the yeah, the limitations of mm, the limitations of what it's actually like the realities of doing a research project really inform how you'll read and interpret and the weighting that you'll give to research in the clinic Absolutely. so what how does actually doing a research project yourself as a student or coming back as a clinician and working with some people mm. like you or I how does that in how does that make you a better clinician it's a leading question how does that inform your clinical practice potentially? Well, I think that as an interesting, like if I give one example is that when you, for example, run a study, and now there are many different study designs, you might do a randomized control trial or just a cohort study, etc. There are nowadays, the levels of expectations that are required to publish research are way more rigorous now than what they were even when I did my PhD. Yeah. And the fact that now if you're going to do research and you're aspiring to publish it, which really is the not the whole point of doing research, but communicating your research is a really important part of the process of doing research. And nowadays there are standards and there are guidelines where you have to you have to report enough steps along the way and you have to be transparent and you might have, um, for example, there's Prisma checklists or there are consort checklists and there are different checklists which mean 
your manuscript has to cover all these different points because they relate to good methodological quality of how you conduct these projects. And knowing that when you're doing a project, if you're planning to publish, that you're going to have to report on all these things means that you have to plan for all those things at the start. And then by the time you've got to the end as maybe publishing that project, you've already learned that, oh my gosh, there were 10 things that I didn't think I needed to consider at the start that were good markers of quality research. But now I know when I read a paper, I'm expecting to look for these things because they are the markers of what is a good quality paper. So as a clinician, then reading a paper, you become familiar with these checklists or you become familiar, even, even if you don't memorize items on a checklist, you understand the domains of biases of what things tend to be, um, you know, yellow flags or red flags that you might look for. And I now, for example, if I compare myself now to when I was a more junior clinician, if I read a paper as a clinician, I was very much someone who would read from top to bottom. And as a someone now, when I read a paper, I have an absolute very different approach to reading a paper because I might read the abstract or read the conclusion just to understand the findings. But then I'm looking at the study design. I'm looking at whether they randomized or not. I'm looking at um, some whether I can detect if the patients were blinded or not. Like I'm looking for particular points because I want to critique the bias in that paper to know whether I should believe it. Because I think one of the real problems at the moment, one of the real challenges is we're in a world where information overload is just too hard to keep up with in terms of how much research is coming out in different forums. And unfortunately, there's also then predatory practices of journals and there are rubbish journals that the paper is not worth reading. And you need to, though, make that decision yourself. You can't actually tell by looking at the paper that it's going to be potentially rubbish to read. You have to critique it yourself. So I've got a very much critical lens now, and I, d I try to not convince people that I'm completely sceptical about everything, but I'm very, um, I come in with a very neutral mindset now. I'm never coming into reading something, even if the journal looks good, to believe it's a good paper. I'll make that call myself. Mm. It's interesting you said whether you believe in it. It could also be whether, not so much whether you believe in it, but how much you're weighting those findings with respect to the mind map you're developing from all the other reading you're doing. Exactly. And I don't feel like when we have these discussions about what you can do as a clinician consuming research that we shouldn't um, be stressing people out listening to this and making it too hard because there's effort barriers to things. And as, as soon as you put the barrier up, uh, the first thing that you get rid of when you get busy is the things you perceive to be uh, you're taking more effort, right? That's why yeah, I keep this podcast. <laughs> that's why I keep this podcast light and conversational, so it's not a stress for me. And I look forward to recording the episodes. Right, so I've reduced that effort barrier every week, so I can just jump on here and make sure I don't make it something that I don't, I don't enjoy doing, and it takes a lot of production, and I, I don't have time. So I'll cancel it. Right. It's the same with consuming research. You know, if you've got some some ways that you can approach it and go and kind of enjoy it, heaven forbid, you might actually enjoy doing it, and you can use some of those checklists. I think that's a really good bit of advice. And I think that though, even on that point, it's not even about, so I use the example of a checklist, but it's hard, like if you were to tell me to cite the items on a checklist, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't get it right. So it's not about memorizing and feeling that there are challenges. I don't even want to look at this because I don't know how to appraise it. It's knowing where to go to find that information. So it's just 
I've got on my website so many hyperlinked, you know, shortcuts to this is the page where I'll go to find out what checklists are out there. <laughs> you know, so it's very much becoming resource aware these days and not needing to feel bad about I don't get this off the top of my head. Like so many things are out there that offer guidance. And I think that the underappreciated element sometimes is that if you don't try regularly, you don't practice, you don't get more efficient and better at it. And it's very easy to put it in the too hard basket because we're a bit um, not confident or scared to have that go and get it wrong. And I think that the only way we get things right is by getting things wrong first as mm. well. Now, for sure. I, I often talk to students about developing a special interest area. I mean, if you can't have everything being a special interest area. And it might be that you're seeing in the clinic at that point in time with that job you're doing, lots of people with low back pain, which can, it's a pretty common story. Or in your context, you're seeing a lot of people with COPD, it becomes a special interest area. Mm -hmm. And so then you can do more specific reading and you can, you can get quite familiar with the current papers that are being published. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it just takes time though, doesn't it? It's not, you can't be across every area of the body like that. No, do you know, that's actually a really good comment though, Luke, because I, for example, I, I struggle. Some people you see in the land of research where they have such this really, really clear linear path to their publications, their projects, their funding, their interest area. And it's really narrowly defined and every research paper's always been on this one topic. Yeah. And I, I can't do that. <laughs> I, as I say, I sort of get bored of one thing after a while. I like to have lots of options. And so my research career even or my career path, it's always had a basis in chronic lung disease. Mm. And But I float between acute, my PhD was in acute hospital care, then there's research I do in pulmonary rehab, there's physical activity, there's frailty, there's asthma, there's COPD. So I'll have pockets of areas that I'm interested in. And sometimes they're topical as in it becomes a wave of this is becoming a hot topic at the moment. So I start to get interested, but a challenge I've also had, because you're right, you cannot keep up with everything is knowing what are the key papers or the guidelines or the things that you really can't get wrong. You need to know what those go-to hot sort of ticket items are, but then also knowing where you're putting up your gates. So for example, I consciously put a barrier up when COVID came out, I'm like, I'm not going to try and keep up with the massive amount of COVID research because I know experts in the area who are doing that. And I know that I could ask them if I needed help. <laughs> like I couldn't take that volume of information in because my thread, if anything, has been the disease of COPD. That's probably as much of a coherent thread that I've had in my um, research up till now. And even though I go out of COPD sometimes, but I might look at education and COPD, I might look at treatment, I might look at acute care, rehab care, like many different aspects, but still with that sort of common goal. And I have realized though, that by having a bit of depth or interest in an area, all of a sudden, you know, small questions that your juniors or your colleagues might ask you, you know, an answer because you went to a PD event on it. And then all of a sudden you start to look into that study that you heard at the PD event, and then you become more familiar with it. And next time someone asks that question, you're answering it with that answer from the PD event, but also, and that study looked at this and that study was really good. And all of a sudden you're starting to talk evidence in your reasoning and you're saying, yeah, that was a randomized control trial. It was really good and it involved this and that. And 
you're now becoming a more research engaged clinician, but it's sort of only from piecing together or capturing some of these key papers or key um, topics. And before you know it, you're sort of going on this path that you may not feel like you are some academically oriented clinician, but you are now moving from just a research user to actually someone who's engaging a bit more actively in that space. Yeah, it's such a great summary. It's not a chore. It does sound like a big chore when you mm. say, oh, if I ask you a boring question, like how can clinicians maintain their evidence-based practice? What does that even mean, right? So that's a, that's a nice boring question. It sounds like a chore. It sounds horrible. And mm. and, and the key point there, the key insight is you, you can't across broad areas. You have to, what did you say? Put up the yeah. gates, set yeah. your limits to the areas that you're going to be focusing on. And then it just be, it just happens naturally as well. You become interested, you develop these special interest areas. You don't necessarily have to specialize clinically or in research, but you will develop areas that you're more passionate about. You see more people with those conditions and, and you're going to naturally be reading research. You're either going to be reading it or other people will be reading it to you. If mm. you're attending events and you have to take them for granted, um, you have to take their, um, uh, take them on their word. I mean, it's well, towards you, the you, findings of those. Yeah. You may have an interest in back pain, upper back, thoracic back pain, cervical, whatever, but then of course you might know that then there's pain and dysfunction that occurs near the shoulder. And sometimes it's the shoulder or the glenohumeral muscles and blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't mean you then have to go to every shoulder course. You can still be co concentrating on the back and the mechanisms and the complexity of how it may relate and refer. And you know that there's a world of research happening on the real shoulder-specific um, world of um, research out there. But you just need to know that if you have knowledge, expertise areas, or you've got an interest in something, that you know where your boundaries to your knowledge also are. And that when something seems to be outside of that is that you know that there's therefore other options and maybe you refer on or seek a guidance from someone who knows more about that because you've sort of seen where your goalposts are and this patient has something that has moved outside of that. So it's sort of that knowing when to ask the next question sometimes. Mm, it's such a good, a good place to get to in this conversation. And I think having those key guidelines, papers, resources, you said you'd hyperlinked lots of them on your website. Well, mm. what, what's your website? We'll put it in the show uh, notes. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> I'll put our, our www.respclab.com is our lab website. Yes, yeah, so you can have a and look at that as an example of what Christian's saying about how you can use and link to and make it easier to use research mm. as a clinician. And I think then even like as an example of a recent project that we did that just shows that the research world is not that complex now i sort of say that with a grain of salt but we one of our resources that we developed which was it took a bit of time because we did follow and because of funding a particular methodological process but it was developing of a educational patient and clinician website resource and it's focusing on education of patients who experience exacerbations of their copd so we spoke to patients healthcare professionals experts and sort of came up with the the main content area, which is not the easy part. That was the hard part. But then what we did was I, through the team of clinicians and physios based predominantly at Monash Health in Melbourne, um, we did this really nice project together where they implemented it. I, I had designed the website and they had helped to contribute knowledge to it. But the project we then did was having iPads and just administering it to our patients and looking at the feedback from the clinicians, from the patients, 
And really what was positive as that outcome is that the project was showing that administering something like that in your face-to-face -face encounters with patient, it was helpful because you didn't have to know all that information. You could just kind of inform the patient to look for this information on this resource, but that the physios also found it saved them time because they didn't have to go over a lot of that detail because the patient had the means to look that up themselves and ask questions. And it helped to facilitate the discussions about the post-discharge care. And right. that was a real example of clinicians. I needed the power of clinicians to do that project. I didn't need people with the academic knowledge, but that if you can find those opportunities and have good relationships, and this is, I think, an important reason for establishing links between healthcare you know, providers and the universities, is you can then find these nice pockets of coming together where each is helping the other and not one of them is higher up or lower up. You're both actually contributing to a project where the goal is to improve outcomes for the patients and the um, healthcare professionals. And it was really a nice positive experience going through that. Mm. And in that example, your clinicians have less stress, I'd imagine, but they have mm. this resource there and there's less memorization and pressure to recall the you know the, the highest form of evidence for example and maybe they do have more time for the things we talk about all the time on this podcast the communication right. skills the personality exactly the, they the discharge bring planning. those skills mm. so that's um, that it's really important how literate is the modern physiotherapy graduate compared to you and i back in 2002 how, how research yeah. can i start that again <laughs> how research literate yeah. is the modern physiotherapy graduate generally? I, if I dwell on certainly the experience at Monash, and I really, I can't accurately say more broadly than that, but yeah. I get the impression, or I'd like to think that the students that come out now have got far better skills and awareness and knowledge of the literature and evidence-based practice than what I would have graduated with. And which means, you know, I won't say my age, but then that obviously means that people who may have been also graduating at a similar time or earlier, I would imagine that the modern students are coming out with better awareness than what we had. Um, but I guess I say that partly because I think the focus has changed. I think that it's very easy to think that we're teaching education of research with this is certain statistics and this is how it's done. And it's sort of the very classical model of research training Whereas I know that in our program of education, at, um, in our courses here, it's very much changed to how first we need to have the foundations of research literacy, like you need to know how to critique a paper or how to know whether evidence should apply to your practice, but that also you then need to be able to go through the steps of I'm aware of evidence. I'm aware that I don't know everything and that you're not teaching me everything that's out there, but I'm learning how to learn. I'm learning where to go to find information so that when some other question comes up down the track, I know where to go. And I think there's a bit of safeguarding in that, that that is the reality that we just, in four years of education, for example, we can't teach everything that is relevant to know about um, research literacy or evidence-based practice. But I think that we hopefully graduate our students with enough basic level, enough resources that they can come back to when their questions arise down the track because they don't have the questions all the time when you're teaching them. 
and that they've had some project application where in particular they've implemented some research methodology it might be a systematic review or a auditing something that they've then seen how it works and to me that nice sort of bridging of basics to applying a bit more and then knowing where to go down the track that to me is a nice sort of framework for the modern student that comes out to be a clinician because students also and early year clinicians just also need to be aware which I think they are that they won't know everything and we don't know everything even 20 years down the track and we don't teach everything but it's good to know where to go when you will have the questions and that there is a need to come back and look at stuff down the track because you can't be expected realistically to be on top of everything. Mm. And the final question is more general beyond research. What do you think are the most important foundational knowledge and skills for a physiotherapist? But I'll prime this one by, th- by mm. saying we've, we've talked about communication a lot. We've talked about people's specific focuses if they have a biomechanics or anatomy or physiology interest or strength and conditioning for Chris, Chris Seville, for example, in his episode. And that's that's fine because that's their angle. But, you know, you just mentioned the importance of the process, you know, having your knowledge and then having your experience. And then later on when you get the questions, having a framework for how you're going to go and answer a question, so learning how to learn. Mm. I imagine that's a big part of, you know, the way you approach your education. So, and you can answer it any way you like. What do you mm. think the most important knowledge and skills for a physio are? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a tricky a tricky one because it would apply broadly. But I think that when when I reflect back, and do you know this sounds really interesting, but the sessions that I have the most reflection and the most discussions and planning are actually probably my very first one or two lectures I give to our first year students because we're dealing with people coming in that may have no idea about the world of still physio they're learning about, but even evidence and what we mean by this. And I feel like we've got this obligation also to do the right job and defend our evidence-based profession by giving accurate information around what we know, what we don't know, what we should know, and what is our, I guess, professional responsibility in terms of how we should conduct ourselves. And where I keep coming back to when I reflect on this is we need to know what we do in practice, whether it is based on any evidence, whether it is based on clinical expertise and our knowledge of that experience. We've had 10 patients that have come through with this, and I know that this tends to work with this person. With this person. Um, knowing the influence of the environment around us because the practice you work in, the hospital you work in, the healthcare system that you work in constrains and affords different opportunities or different limitations upon what you can and can't do. It's all well and good to have a great randomised controlled trial that tells you to do this treatment if you've got no access to the equipment to deliver it. Like it's a pointless exercise in, it's a futile exercise in trying to implement that because you just can't. So the way that that interacts, the patient's preferences as well, the consumer is an active participant in evidence-based practice. So knowing that there are multiple layers of factors that all compound to delivery of evidence-based practice, that we need to know at each of those points when one of them might be falling down, 
and that we obviously try to do the best that we can if we've got no evidence because it's a new area when COVID came about we had no great evidence to tell us what to do but we were clinicians with expertise we borrowed knowledge from other groups we spoke with the patients and we came up with something that we thought was okay and maybe the evidence is catching up now but that's how we practice as evidence-based practitioners is we do the best we can with those multiple perspectives that we have to play with but we just have to be aware that we can easily be tricked by our own biases and our own pitfalls of thinking that we know something without actually really looking into what the evidence actually tells us because if we're not looking for evidence we don't know whether we're practicing something that is actually outdated and evidence has moved on and we have to have that awareness so i think that that sort of coming back to the question of what's the best skill i think it is knowing what we should be doing to be an evidence-based practitioner, but therefore understanding where our limits lie and where the limits of evidence apply and doing our best to just make sure that we are operating in a very responsible way of still conducting ourselves to the best of the best available information that we've got to guide us. And it's depending on where you work, sometimes it's really clear cut and guidelines say evidence tells us we do this and there's just no moving from that path. We always do that. And we often operate in gray zones where we just don't know and we're operating more on expertise and patient preference and you know cost and benefit of what is what are we willing to do and how much time is it going to take um i think if we just practice as a clinician and i just treat this person because i know i tend to do this for that person i think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we stick to that sort of mantra i think that we just need to keep our eyes open Mm, that's a great answer the limits of us and the limits of the evidence can provide you almost with some relief knowing that, okay, I'm, I'm going to draw the line here and say, this is the limit of what I know. This is the limit of what the evidence says based on the best available knowledge I've got. And you, you added in the environment there to David Sackett's Venn diagram of evidence-based <laughs> practice. You got you know, the research evidence, the clinical experience, the patient preferences, and you would mention the environment, the context you're in there as well. You've got this conceptual framework as a true researcher there, <laughs> conceptual framework as an answer of, of what would be the most important framework to work under, which was a different answer that I haven't had before, but a very, mm. very typical Christian answer. Yeah. <laughs> a good researcher answer. So this sort of this framework to work under where you've got, I like how you talked about the, the limits of your yourself and what and your context, the environment and the evidence. And within that, reflecting on what you can do and and developing skills to you know, within those limits. I, I like that answer. I think though that, that, and that to me typifies what we're trying to promote, which is for people to be, you know, evidence-engaged, evidence-based practitioners that you don't need to be an expert in creating evidence to be able to be someone who is in a responsibility to provide good care to your patients. Mm -hmm. And some of that care is driven by our experience, but we also just have to know that we look and need to keep checking of what's out there to make sure that everything is seemingly in line with what might be um, you know, current recommendations. Because obviously evidence changes and we just can't keep up with everything that's coming out at the mm-hmm. moment. So um, we need to at least keep checking and know that there's some things that are easy to understand. There are some areas that are really complex to understand and just understanding that we may need to look for assistance if we don't understand it ourselves. Um, but there's usually people out there as well that can help. Yeah, you're giving people a framework for approaching that uncertainty and that vastness of all the knowledge that's out there and being an evidence-engaged practitioner. I like that. Mm. 
And it sounds it sounds more fun and less boring than being an evidence-based practitioner. That's right. And not a generator. That's right. Yeah, that's great. So final thoughts, anything else you wanted to add or we're happy no, to I, wrap I things think, up? Thank you, firstly, for the chance to chat about it. I think that if I had to give any sort of summary comment, it's really more that it's an understandably complex area to be in a clinical scenario, a young student slash early career clinician and knowing that there's a whole world out there that is a bit imposing and a bit um, Mm. sometimes threatening to understand how to navigate that landscape. But like I mentioned with the example of some of the projects that people that may not think they've got particular researchy skills still have a place in the research environment and looking for those opportunities sometimes starts as simply as just a question or a conversation with somebody and putting yourself in touch with someone who can give that information. And there's often opportunities out there. So, you know, I wouldn't be shying away and being scared of it. I'd absolutely go for it, trying to reinforce that um, willingness. And I think from an employability perspective as well, that managers are looking for research skills more and more. Mm -hmm. Um, Employers in interviews are looking for any evidence that you've engaged in research. Um, I think it's something that unfortunately, whether we like it or not, it is now a part of our roles is to be a lot more engaged in that space. And as digital health evolves, there's really going to be a lot more landscape in this area. Mm, To make sure you keep a a check, a record of all the experiences you're having as well as a student, because you might take them for granted and think they're just a part of the curriculum. But that project that you did in, uh, that you had to do because you wanted to pass your assessments and everything, great. But that could well be, if you found it interesting, there you go. It's your first special interest area. And that's something that really? you can now use as a, uh, you know, as a story in that interview or as a, as a conversation starter at a conference when you go to your first clinical conference and talk to people. And as Christian said, trying to open doors and, and you don't want to be bored. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's very relatable. You're like moving from one thing to the next. And <laughs> but it's fun. It's, 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 you haven't done the one thing and you develop broad skills and you use them in your roles. Um, but I know people can relate to that. It can be, a, if you do a bit too much of jumping around, that can be seen as a bad yeah, thing, but it right. can be, when you're young, it can be can be just quite beneficial as well to that's do right. lots of different things. So there's that's no the other one, side of it. There's no one career path that one must follow. You can each have your own. For sure. Well, everyone, thanks for joining Christian and I in this conversation. Really, um, if you've made it this far, obviously really appreciate your interest in this in these topics. And I really want to thank you, Christian, for your insights there. I've got pages of notes of everything you've taken. Oh, yeah. I'll use those to shape up the, the show notes. So have a look at those if you're, if you're interested and you can, di- you can go to the timestamps. You can also look at um, um, any of the links, the website that Christian mentioned, um, social media handles and things. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put them in there for we'll people. <laughs> yeah, so look in the show notes if you want those things. And um, please keep up those DMs and emails that I'm getting. I really appreciate them. Um, just even if you're just enjoying the conversation and if you want more of something, then let me know. And of course, if you want to come on as a guest, let me know. My next guest is a newly graduated physiotherapist who emailed me last week and they said they want to talk about some topics on the podcast. And I said, yes, of course, please, and booked it in. So that's coming up next week. And I'm sure you're going to really appreciate that one. Um, But keep giving me that feedback. You can find me at Periton Physio and Susanna as well, at Periton Physio on LinkedIn and Twitter and sometimes Instagram, try to avoid. And um, you can see our selected podcast episodes on our YouTube channel, which is Periton Physio. You can look that up. Um, So look that up if you're interested, but see you next time. And 
thanks very much, Christian, for a great conversation. We're going to do it again. I always say that, but I can, um, uh, I've got plenty, I've got about four or five episodes I could, we could do specifically on your leads you gave me there. So we'll do it again in the future. Thank you very much for your time. Hope it's of interest to your listeners out there. Excellent. Thanks, Christian. So until next time, this is Christian and Luke wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning.